Uh, when we come to the Bible, we often come to the Bible looking for answers, doctrines, methods, and rules. But at the heart of it, the Bible is a story with the beginning, middle, and end. And so that's why we try to experience it as a story every year to remind us that this is the story that we believe. This is our story. Um, this is the one that we inhabit as we live in 2022, whatever you're doing, wherever you are. Uh, we, uh, in this room, we have some people in the room who believe that everything in this story is true. Um, and we have others who don't, who maybe believe some of it's true, but not all of it, or just think the whole thing is not true. And that is a good thing. That, that creates really helpful and encouraging conversation. Um, we learn from our different backgrounds. It adds a lot to our time together. Um, while we come to this story from different places, I hope our purpose is the same, is that we are seeking to grow personally and to build relationships with one another. Uh, feel the freedom to challenge the story. Uh, no emotion, question, or thought is off limits. I'm not going to try and change your mind. That's not what this space is for. Uh, let's remember to share the space, too. Uh, some of you are talkative, like me. You're excited to answer any question and to jump in there. Uh, give room, though, for the quieter people uh, to uh, answer. Um, if you find yourself um, jumping early, um, pause and let them speak. Some people need silence and space to formulate their thoughts. Uh, again, in terms of rules, there's really just one, and that is that we only discuss information that has emerged from narratives that have already been told. And so thus far, once we sort of hit start and it becomes a, a sealed space, thus far we haven't talked about Jesus because he hasn't come up in the story. Um, and so only when he comes up will we start to reference him. Um, so if you already know what's going to happen later in the story, um, don't jump ahead. Uh, let the story unfold. Uh, also, feel free. It's a little bit of a longer time, and so feel free to get up and grab coffee, go to the bathroom, stand, uh, move around. You are uh, welcome to do what you need to do to, to stay attentive. So I'll recap the story, and I'm going to ask you to help me uh, uh, call out the answers uh, to questions to help us uh, catch up to speed. So in week one, we started with a story called Beginnings, where we learned about a character named God. We learned that God always does what is good, right, and perfect. And then we moved on to a scene entitled First Humans. Humans were created in the image of God and given the responsibility and authority to cultivate the earth, direct its flourishing, and multiply. And they were given just one rule, and they broke it, and that broke the world. They sought to be like God, and it led to their undoing. The next stories illustrated the extent of their brokenness, with Cain murdering Abel. We talked about the flood and the Tower of Babel. Uh, why did God, according to the story, why did God flood the earth? Does anyone remember the reason from the story? Yeah, go for it. It was because the earth was filled with sinners. It was filled with sinners. Yeah, what was the description of the story? What did he say, the extent of it? It was filled with violence. Yeah, he said, and I think the story said that they always do what is evil and they never do what is good. So it's a, sort of an extreme situation. Um, so he chose to flood the earth and destroy everything. Uh, who did he save and why? Jillian? That's right. So he saved Noah because Noah found favor, and then it called him, they, the Bible called him blameless. Um, this is, we, we moved pretty quickly past this story, but I'm curious, uh, why did God scatter people at the Tower of Babel? So the flood saved Noah, then people multiplied. Tower of Babel, people gathered to build a big tower. Why did God choose to scatter people? Well, to quote my grandma, they were getting too big for their bridges. <laughs> they thought that they could reach God by building a tall enough building and that they were like so smart and so capable. And That's right. They didn't need him anymore. That's right. They were getting too big for their bridges. Um, and 
Uh, and they were doing the opposite of what God had called people to do, right? To multiply and fill the earth. They were not filling the earth. They weren't going out. And so he scattered them. And so we see a pattern begin to form that when people disobey God, he responds with both justice and grace. Um, he doesn't respond with one or the other, but with both. And that he remains not just committed to humanity, but to his original purpose for humanity, that they would fill the earth, that they would multiply, that they would have dominion over it, and that the earth would flourish. After the flood and after the Tower of Babel, God makes a covenant with Abraham. A uh, covenant is a relationship based in promise where two people who are not naturally family become family. So that's why we call a marriage a covenant, because they're not naturally family, but they covenant together to join as family. Uh, what did God promise Abraham in the covenant? What are some of the things that he promised to do for Abraham? So that's right. So after the flood, he did promise uh, to Noah that he would never flood the earth again. Um, and so that is happening. And then he adds other promises to Abraham. And what are those? Give a seed like the stars of the heavens and the sands of the seas. That's right. He's going to multiply him. So again, the purpose is to fill the earth. But uh, rather than just commanding humanity to fill the earth, he gives a promise that he's going to multiply Abraham as many as the sands on the seashore and the stars in the sky. Um, he also, is, is he going to just do that for Abraham? What else, what does he promise to do through Abraham? He's going to bless Abraham so that he can blessings to all the people. That's right. So the blessing doesn't end with Abraham, but it's, it's through Abraham that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What did God ask for from Abraham in return? Did Abraham have to do anything? Give his most beloved. Say it again. Give his most beloved thing on earth. Yeah, so at the end, he we read about the sacrifice of Isaac, so he had to be willing to sacrifice Isaac. But at the beginning, was there anything that he had to do? Yeah, he had to leave his family. He had to go um, into a new place. Um, and he had to have faith. He had to trust God, that God would keep his promises. And that was quite a feat because he didn't keep his promises for like 25 years, <laughs> at least it, or any of them, right? And so he was just waiting. Um, so after the life of Abraham, we saw that God did what he said he would do for Abraham. He gave him a son. He gave him descendants. He gave him land. Um, and his descendants grew into a huge nation called Israel. Uh, they were all living in Egypt. Pharaoh became threatened by their size. And so he began to persecute the Israelites and make them into slaves. And so God sent another man named Moses to rescue them. And there are a bunch of plagues that afflict the Egyptians. There are 10 plagues. Um, there are a bunch that afflict the Egyptians, but not the Israelites, except for the last one. The last one applies to everyone. What was the final plague? Was it um, the, the firstborn son? That's right. So if you put your, like, the blood of the lamb, you couldn't break any of the lamb's bones, and you put the blood on your door, and then the, like, death torch or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. That's right. So the final plague was that the, that the death ghost, the angel of death, would take the firstborn son of every family. But in order to spare the firstborn son, the family could sacrifice the spotless lamb, making sure not to break its bones, um, and to paint that blood on the mantle of the door, and the death ghost would pass over, um, pass over the family and not take the firstborn son. Where else in the story have we, up to this point, have we seen an animal's blood protecting people from death? Or just the use of an animal's death? The sacrifice of Isaac. The sacrifice of Isaac. That's right. There was a ram caught in a thicket in his place. 
anywhere else that we've seen an animal sacrificed for the sake of human shame and guilt? There was a covering of skins in the garden for the first humans. That's right. So they had sought to cover themselves, their nakedness, with leaves, um, fig leaves. I don't know if that's just, I don't know if it actually says fig leaves in the Bible or if that's just like a thing in art. Some kind of leaves. <laughs> Ineffective. Um, but an animal was sacrificed so that they were covered with animal skins instead. So in scripture, I mean, one of the beautiful things about the story of God is there's all these patterns and themes that sort of pick up and, and, and grow and strengthen over the course of the story. Um, and you guys are doing great at, at identifying those. Uh, upon leaving Egypt, God takes Israel back to Canaan. Um, but before they're there at the mountain of Sinai, Mount Sinai, he makes another covenant with them that he will make them into a kingdom of priests. Uh, what do you think of that phrase? How do, you, how do you feel about it? What does it remind you of? Kingdom of priests. Kings, it was, it's kings and priests, but then specifically the phrase is kingdom of priests. And so what does that imply, to be a kingdom of priests? That that would be part of their role in the world as they like were a blessing, you know, that God would bless the world through Abraham, that they would mediate between God and the nations. Yeah, would priests be a special class of people? Like in that, what does it imply when you say kingdom of priests? That's right. So yeah, you don't have just one priest, or which is, would be typical in any, uh, but the ancient Near East for sure that there would be a, cr a group of people that were priests. But in this case, everybody were priests and had all the authority of that, but also the responsibility to uh, mediate. Um, it reminds us of, of earlier in the story, like Adam, that was a little bit of the image um, of God and likeness of God in Adam, that he was to be uh, something like a priest, that God would bless the world through Adam's uh, work and then also through, and then later through Abraham. Um, at Sinai, God also gave the commandments. Um, the commandments came um, after the covenant. And so how significant, how is it significant that God gave the law after he rescued them, after he made a covenant promise with them. What do you feel like the significance of that is? It's covenant then commands. Uh, just point of clarification. It says fig leaves, so that's proper. Okay. <laughs> Great. You're good. Excellent. <laughs> we don't want wrong images floating. So that is correct. Well, yeah, one year I was... Uh, leading this, I was sharply rebuked for saying apple, that she took the apple, and they're like, that is not, it was not technically an apple. So, I didn't want that to happen again. Um, so, God gives commandments, the Ten Commandments, after he promises to be their God. Is that a significant order, or what would it, how would it have been different if he gave the commandments first? I think it's Yeah, it's the, it, yeah, the commands, they didn't have to agree to the commands before receiving the promise. Um, do you like that order or do you, 
does it kind of feel like a bait and switch that he like rescues them and he's like, okay, now you're gonna live like this. Like, do you appreciate the order or would you have rather gotten the terms before the covenant? Would the uh, commands first imply that there was something they could do to save themselves and God saved them first, so therefore they couldn't say that they did this something themselves during God's pleasure or God's trust? Or... Yeah, yeah, they, they, they couldn't say that they earned the rescue from slavery. Yeah, it was entirely God's grace and mercy. Absolutely. Well, it's also like God gives commandments and laws, but if he hadn't, they'd be living by some laws. You yeah. know, they, they wouldn't be living in total chaos, mm-hmm. presumably. You know, like whatever um, the boundaries of their world are, they're, they're placed there by somebody. God is giving them that, and there's a sense to me that it's like, this is the way we're, you know, this is the way we're going to try to live within this covenant. Yeah. But the covenant is not conditional on getting it right all the time. Yeah. Yeah, it makes the, you know, Torah is the word, and Torah means instruction. So, like, commands maybe has, like, a little bit of a negative connotation, I think technically it's the 10 words, you know, and so it's really more fatherly um, that like I've rescued you, you're my child now, um, the nation of Israel, you are my children. And so they're within the context of grace, like this is how you live and flourish. Um, but quickly, it, it, it does still have a weight to it, right? Because what happens if God's people break the commandments? Like, what could they do? That, it was still dangerous for the Israelites to break the commandments. What did they have to do if they did that? David. Those 10 commandments were made for us to, like, God, those were made for us. Those are like guardrails on the road. I mean, you don't uh, mess with any one of those. They were messing up so much that any one of those was this path of destruction. You don't go messing with your neighbor's wife. These are things that, you know, these are for your children. If you go past this garden, you know, you keep going off the road and there's a cliff there. Yeah. You put guardrails for you so you can live a productive, happy life with your spouse, your spouse, and your neighborhood. That's they right. They all made for us. They were made for, like, straight disease to, now I need you to do this. This is like, you got to get a little out of control. You're not following your spirit. Here's some guardrails to try to keep you on the road to a better life. Yeah, guardrails came up with in at least the first week. I remember talking about hearing... I think Rob mentioned the, the idea of guardrails being a benefit that allows us to live more free. We can drive on the hillside more freely if we have guardrails. We're not as scared. Um, and then, but then the, the commandments are still serious, uh, which is why there was the whole sacrificial system um, in place, that if they did break the commandment, the only way they could stay in relationship with God was if they sacrificed and killed animals. Um, Jerusalem and the temple would have been a really bloody place, right? There would have been constant um, animals dying uh, for the sake of their relationship with God to maintain that relationship. Uh, They would need to sacrifice many, many animals because they would sin against God time and time again. And not just sin in the day-to-day, but whole generations would turn their back on God and follow after other gods. And so I'm going to move us through the story. We're going to in one scene, cover the entire rest of the Old Testament. So, Act 3, promise, uh, scene 3, the kings and the prophets. The people of Israel continued on their journey back to the promised land, and God led them by a great cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. When this cloud moved, they followed it, and they set up camp wherever it stopped. But when the people of God got closer to Canaan, they would not enter the land because they were afraid of the people who lived there. God's punishment for not trusting him was to make them wander in the desert for 40 years. This was a time filled with struggle and complaints against God and Moses. As Moses neared the end of his life, he reminded the people of Israel of all of God's promises, laws, and commandments. Moses challenged them, you must love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, for he is your life. Then Moses said to Joshua, the next leader of Israel, in front of all the people, be strong and courageous. Now you will lead these people into the land God promised us. Do not be afraid or discouraged. God will never leave you or forget about you. 
After wandering the desert for 40 years, God led the people of Israel to recapture the promised land from their enemies. As the Israelites entered the land, God told them to drive out all the people who lived there because they were evil. God gave them many victories in battle and completely honored his promises to them. But the people didn't listen to God's command. They did not drive out all the people, and eventually they started worshiping their false gods. And this false worship led them into many other sins. Because of their sin and disobedience, God removed his protection and allowed them to be overpowered and punished by foreign nations. When the people suffered, they would come back to God and beg for his help and forgiveness. God would once again forgive them and send leaders called judges to lead them in defeating their enemies. They were one, and they would once again conquer their enemies at every border. In victory, the people would worship God, but soon after, the people, often the next generation, would turn away from God again and live their own way. This was the pattern from generation to generation. The people of Israel would come to God and worship him when they needed help, but when things were going well, they returned to worshiping other things. The Bible describes these times of rebellion as a time when everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. Since kings ruled other nations, the people of Israel complained to God, saying, we want a human king that we can see to rule over us. They thought this would answer their problems. God gave the people what they wanted and allowed them to be ruled by a succession of human kings. The first king they chose was Saul because he was tall and handsome, but Saul disobeyed God, and so God removed his blessing. Then God searched for a king who would love him and live in his ways, and he chose a young boy named David. When David grew up and was made king, God blessed him greatly and Israel with him. Even though David greatly sinned against God, God still called him a man after God's own heart. God made yet another covenant with David and promised him that one of his heirs would be a king, who would rule forever as king over God's people and also as king over the entire earth. David's son Solomon was also a great king who was very wise. But later on, Solomon married foreign wives who led him to worship foreign gods. Because of his failures, God allowed civil war to break out and God's people were divided. The line of kings descending from David continued to rebel against God and his authority. God sent prophets to be his messengers to challenge the kings and the people to obey God and fulfill their role to be a light to the nations and bring blessing to them. But time and time again, they refused to listen to these prophets. Because of their rebellion, God removed his protection from Israel and her kings and allowed other nations to come in and conquer them. The, the time, the Israelites were, this time, the Israelites were forced out of the promised land and sent into exile, once again, slaves of a foreign nation. For centuries, God's people would be under the oppressive thumb of one world power after another. God continued to send prophets to the people, even in exile, and these prophets told of a hope that one day God would make a new covenant with his rebellious people. He would do this by sending a great savior, sometimes called an eternal king, sometimes called Messiah or anointed one, sometimes warrior, sometimes suffering servant. This Messiah would fulfill the covenant himself. He would redeem God's people from exile. He would save God's people and rule over God's creation forever. Despite the warnings of the prophets, the people of Israel stopped listening to God and God stopped talking for 400 years. All right, uh, some questions. So by now we've heard a summary of the entire Old Testament. What to you is most striking, are the most striking characteristics and patterns of this history? What jumps out at you? Mercy and loving kindness. So yeah, we see God's continuing to show mercy. And what do we see from people? A total inability to hold their end up of the bargain. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Repeated catastrophic failure. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, 
repeated failure, rebellion, but inability is like a good word. Um, it feels impossible. There seems to be this tension of people wanting a God, but not the God they want. Mm. Their own false gods um, and wanting to get fulfillment that only God can give them, but they're like, no, 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 I want this over here. So there seems to be this tension between what they want and what's really best for them. Yeah. And that seems to like go all the way back to the first story with uh, Eve being created in the image of God, but then being tempted to be like God, that there's sort of a, you, ha you have it good, but there's something else, something missing. Yeah, you see uh, impatience in humans kind of throughout the story. You see Abraham not waiting on God to fulfill his promises. You see Israel uh, getting really impatient in their uh, wilderness wandering for 40 years. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, God being really patient with very impatient humans throughout mm -hmm. the story. Yeah. I see a lot of fear. Um, mm. And yeah, it's just surprising to me. It feels as if ever since the garden, uh, fear is like a dominant motivator or uh, way of navigating the world, which is so sad because that fear blocks going back to the idea of this nation being a kingdom of peace. But I think of peace, I think of people who have access to God and have a deep relationship to God, um, where you, you trust God and that encourages more faithfulness because you see God show up in mighty ways. But even the people not going into Canaan because of fear indicate that there's, there's a brokenness in their relationship to God. Um, it just seems really sad because yeah, it just seems really sad to me. I feel sad for the people uh, this go around, where I think in past times I've, I've kind of uh, been frustrated with them. We're like, what, what's going on? Like, why don't you see like what God is doing? And, and more so now, just kind of sad for them that their relationship is so broken that they're not, they can't experience really amazing things that God wants for them. Mm. One, yeah, reason for their fear, God has his hand in both Israel's judgment and their redemption so that he is actively involved in judgment. And so what does that teach us? How is that instructive to you that God is the one who both judges and redeems Israel? Is that encouraging? Is it discouraging? Do you like it? Do you not like it? Yeah, the yeah, the when we think of a, a faithful father, faithful fathers are sometimes scary. Um, so maybe that's part of it. It's also encouraging to me that God is the one, like it's not the other nations who are strong. Like they only overtake him because God allows the Philistines to overtake him, allows the Persians, whoever it might be. Um, he's the one who's ultimately in control. This uh, complicated history um, of back and forth, uh, how do you personally relate to it? How does it compare to the history of the church as you think about what you know of the history of the church and the church today? Does it feel like it makes sense of people?
Yeah. I'm finding out today that they're digging these people up, that they have so many diseases that if they were left to live or their animals, they would have wiped out the earth. There was more things that God knew that man didn't, but man decided to go be obedient beyond their knowledge as uh, they Yeah, I think you, you could... Um, and, and we seek to sort of like, we could try to justify the, justify the decision. Within the story, though, it's like very matter of fact that God just tells them to do it. Those are things that they didn't know. Um, and that is really hard. They go and displace and is, and is reminiscent of some church history, right? Uh, um, conquistadors and those sorts of things who, who came removing people with uh, flags of the cross um, blaring. So, um, so does that, do you feel like the fact that it, does the narrative help you uh, have more sympathy for the history of the church, or does it complicate it? Yes, sir. I'm really bothered by this. You were bothered by it, you said? Yeah, and that um, opens up, if, if we are going to be saved and if the world is going to be saved, uh, then it requires that my eyes be saved. <laughs> you know, it requires that everyone has the right eyes. <laughs> you know, like it has to be so deep and so transformative that I get new eyes and that we all do. Um, yeah, I... I also, I'm just really challenged at how gritty the Old Testament history is, how it's clearly so much tension. We're not glorifying um, the people of God, and how can we now, how can I like tell the church history in the same way, which is really matter-of-fact, that it's like both attentive to God's hand and uh, that he is just and redeemer, um, but people are difficult um, and messy and wrong, deeply wrong. Um, do you sympathize with 
God in this story? Like, do you agree with God's decision to just save the Israelites over and over and over again? Like, uh, do you think he's being too gracious or not gracious enough? It seems like God almost has like a limit. Mm-hmm. Like, looking at this cycle, like even uh, you know when he wipes out the world uh, in Noah's story, and then you know he tries again, and it's he's like, okay, I'll let you slide this time, I'll let you slide this time, and then he gets to the point where he's like, all right, you know what? I'll just let you guys get taken over. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how I like. I don't know. It, it feels like there's a limit. There, to me, it's like I also have limits. Like if someone's gonna wrong me again. Were you raising your hand? No? Okay. <laughs> um. I think what's amazing oh. to me is that, similar to what you were just saying, is like, God doesn't allow the Israelites to totally get wiped out. Hmm. And like, many opportunities for that to happen in the Old Testament of like bigger armies, bigger nations. And like, that's just amazing to me. Like, that they could continually mess up. But not to the point where they just like oh like we're not allowed to get taken over even today. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is amazing. I I wonder if if they might have thought it it was done in their own experience, but when you draw back, you can see that. I don't know how the Israelites like felt in like year forty seven in Babylon exile. Like maybe they thought it was done, but yeah, it wasn't done. Right, which probably was a horrible feeling. It's kind of interesting that the kind of the final judgment is 400 years of silence. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, you know, I would probably have pegged it at something else. Um, like, kill me, like, put me in under bondage or slavery. But this idea that, uh, again, it just makes me think with, um, think about my relationship with my life. And the worst thing I can do is silent and to like separate myself from from her uh, and so I, I don't know it conveys this idea of like the messiness and hardness of relationships and how you know to your question it, and it, it makes me feel sad now both for the people but for God too that it had come to the point that the maybe the best thing that could have been done is just silence mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of the first week when we talked about the fall and somebody thought about like what it was like to wait, to like sin, to know you're naked, feel the shame, and then wait until seeing God, like those hours of time. And then here we have 400 years. Let's move forward. Act four, redemption, scene one, the birth of Jesus. 400 years passed since God had spoken to his people The Israelites, called Jews, had been under the control of other nations for hundreds of years. They were now ruled by Rome, the most powerful empire that the world had ever known. The Jews were still waiting and hoping for a king who would come to save them and lead them into victory. Some of the people tried to keep the law of God, the law God gave to Moses, as strictly as possible to show they were faithful to the king when he came. Some conspired with the Romans for self-benefit. Some sought to take the kingdom by force and acted out in violence against the Romans, and some hid away in remote mountains, segregating themselves for when the king came. Everyone was waiting and waiting and waiting. Finally, God sent an angel to a young woman named Mary in the town of Nazareth. She was engaged to marry a man named Joseph, who was a descendant of King David and of Abraham. The angel told Mary that she would become pregnant and give birth to God's son, even though she was still a virgin. The angel revealed that this child in her was from the Holy Spirit and would become a king whose kingdom would never end. Sure enough, the next year, Mary gave birth to a son whom they named Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation. Not only did God reveal to Mary and Joseph that this boy was the long-awaited Messiah king, but God revealed it to others too. Angels shouted the news to shepherds, who then ran into town to find the baby Jesus and tell everyone the amazing news. 
a star guided wise men from distant lands to come and worship and bring gifts to this newborn king. The birth was truly a miracle. But after the miracle, Jesus disappeared into a very normal life. He grew up both in height and wisdom and was loved by God and everyone who knew him. Short little story. Um, The story described four modes of waiting for God's salvation. The legalists, the separatists, the compromisers, and the revolutionaries. Um, Turn to your neighbor and share which group would you most identify with. Like if you put yourself in that boat, which do you think you would fall into? Would you be a legalist that just try to do everything that's right, follow the law perfectly? Would you be a separatist, just go away and wait in the mountains until the Messiah came? Would you be a compromiser, make lemons out of lemonade, just sort of, sort of make some money, uh, partner with the Romans? Or would you be a revolutionary? Would you be a fighter? Uh, somebody who uh, tried to take back Israel by force. So turn to your neighbor for just a minute and share. Come back together. There was a tiny group of Israelites, a small group, uh, which the Bible refers to as a remnant, who were marked by faithful waiting. Uh, They didn't fall into any of those camps. Mary is an example of this and some of the other characters of someone who was waiting for the Lord. Um, How does waiting on God, a remnant waiting, make sense given the story thus far? Um, And is that, how do you feel about joining that crew, the, the waiters, the people who just waited? Yeah, the advantage of these other four camps is it, it feels like it gives you some agency, like some, like, oh, I'm going to do, I'm doing something. Um, and waiting feels like doing nothing. It's not like it's an actual thing to do, but it feels like nothing. Um. It feels like a conspiracy theorist. Like, they're kind of just like, oh, if you just hold out for a little longer, you know, it's like, dude, it's been 400 years. Like, <laughs> super hard to hold on to the stories, believing in the stories. And that, like, I'm assuming that no one in that time period, like, was willing to be 400 years old, and so, like, there would have been no one around who, like, actually experienced, mm-hmm. like, that, the point in time where God, like, was communicating. Um, so, yeah, I think even just thinking about, yeah, like, if no one was 
Mm. Yeah. Who was Jesus a descendant of? David and Abraham. Yeah. How is that significant? Why is that important from earlier in the story? It fulfilled the prophecy, right? Yeah, David, God had made a covenant with David that a king would rise who would reign forever. Um, and so there were specific things, and that's a good example because during that 400 years is when the Bible was sort of formed and written down, and so people studied those prophecies and like, what are we looking for? And one of the things that was sort of had to happen was it had to be a, a, a descendant of David. What does Jesus' name mean? Anyone catch that? Emmanuel, God with us. So Emmanuel, he's referred to it, but then actually Jesus itself, like um, Yeshua. The Lord is salvation is what Yeshua means. Um, What is the significance of that? How does that phrase strike you? The Lord is salvation. Yeah, because Lord has a authority sense to it, right? Um, anything else strike you about the name the Lord is salvation? It reminds me of the beginning of the story and the promise that God makes to Eve in the garden. There would be one who would crush the head of the serpent. Mm-hmm. We don't know where the story is going at this point, but even just that name, Lord of Salvation, it's like, oh man, could this be the one that could maybe crush the head of the serpent? Mm-hmm. And uh, we don't know yet, but it, it, it kind of whispers that. Yeah. I think it, um, it's what I sort of notice about it is instead of saying the Lord saves, the Lord himself is salvation. So it, it again like centers it in him and in his person um, as opposed to him being a means to an end, you know? Uh, he himself is the end, uh, which is just, that almost like has that same like Yahweh, I am kind of situation um, to me, what jumps out to me. Well, uh, we have one more scene and, uh, well, two scenes and one discussion. Uh, Act 4, scene 2, Jesus' baptism. God sent a messenger named John to tell people to get ready because the Messiah was coming. John was a distant cousin of Jesus, born just six months before him. He was a rugged man who lived in the wilderness, ate locusts and wild honey, and wore clothes made out of camel hair. John boldly challenged the Jews, don't just say that you love God, prove it with your life. Turn away from your sins and turn to God. He became known as John the Baptizer because he dunked in Jordan River those who had confessed their sins. Baptism was a symbol that you were part of God's people and that you had been washed clean from your sins and were chosen, were choosing a new way of living. When Jewish leaders asked John if he was the Messiah, he responded, no, but someone is coming soon who is far greater than me. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals or even to be his slave. You see, I baptize with water, but he will baptize with God's spirit. Soon after that, Jesus came to be baptized. And when John saw him, he said, I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. But Jesus insisted. So John baptized him in front of the crowds. And when Jesus came out of the water, God's spirit came down from the sky. It looked like a dove floating down and resting on him. And then a voice from heaven said, you are my son whom I love. You bring me great joy. Act four, scene three, Jesus' temptation. Immediately after being baptized, Jesus was led by God's spirit to go into the wilderness. There Satan tempted him for 40 days and 40 nights. And during that entire time, Jesus didn't eat anything and became very hungry. Satan tried to deceive Jesus, saying, If you're God's son, why don't you turn these rocks into loaves of bread to eat? And Jesus answered him, No. When God spoke to Moses, he said, People need more than bread to live. They must find their life in the words of God. Then Satan took Jesus to the top of the tallest building in Jerusalem and said, If you are God's son, jump off. 
your sacred writings say God will send his angels to catch you and you won't even hit the ground. Jesus replied, Moses also wrote, do not test God. Next, Satan took Jesus to the peak of a huge mountain and he showed him all of the nations of the world in their brilliance. He said, I will give you all of this, anything you want, if you'll kneel down and worship me. Jesus responded, get away from me, Satan. It's commanded, put God above everything else and only worship him. Then Satan went away and angels came and took care of Jesus. At this time, he was about 30 years old. Throughout Jesus' life, he never sinned or rebelled against God. He always chose to do what was good and right and perfect. Our last uh, discussion. Uh, John's ministry and message was similar to the separatists and the legalists, but how was it different? It, it, it wasn't quite separatist, wasn't quite legalist. What was different about it? Yeah, that's not his, yeah, primary concern. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. Can the legalism part feel like trying to get people to realize that following the Ten Commandments does not make you salvation? Yeah, so you're not saved by your works, but it sort of opens up the door to redemption and grace and, be, and being ready. Um, yeah, that's good. He's also not a separatist because he's distinct but engaging with others. Yeah, he may. Yeah, once people, he you have to come out to see him, but you don't stay with them out, right? He he baptizes people and then he sends them back into the city into their jobs. Um, so that's different. And he's also not about himself. You know, the whole idea of him saying, "I'm not the Messiah." Like, he, there's a humility here that doesn't seem to mark the other groups who really think that they're the ones that are going to bring salvation. Um, it surprised John that Jesus wanted to be baptized. Um, what does Jesus' baptism, So, because earlier we learned that he always does what is good and right and perfect. Um, so what is the significance that Jesus was baptized? Does that encourage you, challenge you, both? He's perfect, but he still is being baptized like everybody else. Yeah, yeah, that he is willing to do this, like, without any problem, like, without worrying about what people think, you know, where he's not like, just so you know, I'm not a sinner, and I just, I don't really actually need this, you know, like, that's what I would do, you know, um, but he's like, cool, I'll identify with these crazy people. Yeah, yeah, it sort of, it is the first instance in scripture of baptism. Um, and so that's, that's certainly significant. Um, why did God's spirit lead Jesus into temptation right after God said, this is my beloved son? 
or what do you think about it? I don't know. I don't know if we can know why, but it seems like in parallel to kind of the story of uh, Adam and Eve, like the Israelites, like right after God's like, "Oh, I love you so much," like something like tests them, you know, <laughs> and it's like he's not alone in this. Essentially, like just like us, you know, we even when we Yeah, that's great. This is the first year that I really, you know, because we're so bothered by the presence of the serpent in the garden, we feel like he shouldn't be there. But then this is the first time where I thought, like, well, maybe, I mean, we know it's on purpose, but in the same way that here, it's Jesus and then serpent, right? Jesus and Satan. Like, was that part of God's design for Adam? Obviously, the, the desire was for it to go a different way. Um, or it could have gone a different way, but that you are beloved and tested, that those things go together. Something that we were talking about earlier, which is like, we like the commandments, or like the, the, the rescuing and then the commandments, like order of operations, kind of order where he was given his identity first without regard to like how he would perform. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that what is, how does Satan tempt Jesus? How, what does he start with? What's the phrase? If you are the son of God. If you are the son of God, yeah. And so Satan's pattern is to question God's word, but then more deeply to question his identity. Like, hey, if you're, if you're the son of God, just a little bit, it sort of it simultaneously sounds affirming, oh, if you're the son of God, but there is this like barb, you know, this poison pill of doubt. That, that he's trying to do. Um, also, just can you go back to the other slide? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was looking at that. So it says, why does God's spirit lead Jesus into temptation? So, but God's not tempting Satan's. And then you use the word test. So I always think like that's like God does not tempt us. Mm-hmm. God will test us. He tested Abraham. He tests us. So I just It is different. What is the, so it's similar to Adam and Eve, what's different about Jesus' temptation versus Adam and Eve? He withstands it. He withstands he it. That's right, he doesn't succumb. Um, how does he withstand it? What's his methodology? I love that phrase, to not let Satan get in your head. That's a great phrase. Um, Yeah, that is a a life goal of mine. (laughs) And so I love that. Yeah, and then he does it specifically by quoting scripture, right? He quotes, he says, he quotes God's word. Moses said, Moses said. um, I feel like this is a really valuable point, too, because up until this, we've seen that Jesus is like fully human. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's such helpful to end on um, in a world where that really values empathy and that someone understands and knows my experience. 
that for salvation, I want that to an extent, but not fully. I don't want somebody who's just in the sinking boat with me, right? You know, like I want somebody who uh, can rescue me um, and how Jesus does that um, is powerful. Um, and we'll continue that story next week. Let me pray and then we're gonna move, out of, move into communion.